that's, that's it. That's something. Um, wow. Well, I'm going to wear a headset and hold a microphone, so you're going to get a double dose, I guess, this morning. Um, hey, look, we're glad to be here. Um, I think there are a number of people that we know in this room. A lot of the people have gone go to the first service that were here when I was on staff, if you don't know. I was on staff here about five years ago, and Reed came in and took over and did exceedingly and abundantly beyond what I could ever ask or imagine. And what, uh, man, what a great job. And I'm thankful for Reed and his friendship. I'm thankful for Pastor Scott and his friendship. And I apologize to you guys. Scott has, Pastor Scott had asked me to come and preach before now, and we just could not make it happen with our schedule. In fact, he's offered us to come and preach a series, and it just has not worked out, as you know, with um, International Mission Board missionaries, part of our time here on furlough or on stateside assignment is we go around to different churches and just share with them what God is doing in the work in Zambia. And so because of that, our schedule has been really full, and I appreciate the invitation by Scott to, to do those services and to do more sermons but have not been able to work it out. So blame me for that. I'm really sorry. We want to be here more than we've been able, able to be here. Uh, as many of you know, we're still members at this church. Uh, so we love this church. We love being able to, I was able to baptize our children this morning, two of our, our two eldest children. And so that was important to us, to be able to come back to our home church and be able to baptize them here. And, and with so many of you that have played a part in their lives as they have grown up and chosen to follow Christ and enter into that relationship with him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Through 11, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. As you're turning there, let me just uh, say thank you for your gifts to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. For you guys at Northside, what, what you do here is you give to the World Mission offering. And the World Mission offering, they take that and they divide it up among international and domestic missions. And 45% of your offering goes to the International Mission Board. And that supports missionaries like Heather and myself. It supports our, our children, we go. We have homeschool, so you provide homeschool materials for us to school our children where we live. You provide a car, you provide a house, you provide our salary, you provide medical care, you pl- provide for immigration fees and paperwork and that kind of thing. So all that money that you guys give to Lottie Moon supports missionaries like us, and there's about 4,000 other missionaries serving around the world. And so you are a part of that ministry simply because of your giving. Also through the cooperative program, which Northside gives to generously, that money also makes some, some of that makes its way to the International Mission Board. I did want to make you aware there's a brochure that we have and would like for you to take one of these home with you. This is your Lottie Moon Dollars at Work. This is a great brochure to help you understand how your Lottie Moon Dollars are spent. Oftentimes, we give to offerings and we don't really understand where those monies are going to or how they're spent this brochure does a great job of helping you understand how people pay for uh, learning the language and our our tutors and doing that or putting a new set of tires on the land cruiser that we drive is a, a couple thousand dollar proposition and so this brochure just gives you some real practical ways that your lottie moon dollars help us on the field and how those are spent and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have my children at the end of the service. One will come to this door, one to that door, and there will be one in the back. And they'll have a stack of these. If I tell you to come up to the table and get one, you won't do it, but you won't be able to turn down my children. They're beautiful and adorable because they take after their mother. Um, so they will be there with those for you guys to be able to, to take. 
Also, if you come up to the front here where our table is, we send out a prayer newsletter about every six weeks. We'll just send out an update of what's going on and ask you to pray for certain situations. Or if there's kind of an emergency situation where we need a specialized prayer for something, we'll just send out a quick email. We won't send your, uh, sell your email addresses to spammers or anything like that. It's safe uh, with us. But if you would like to be on our prayer newsletter list, just come up after the service and sign up. On that table right there, there's a place that you can put your name and your email address. We promise we won't bombard you with just ridiculous things and videos and pictures and clips and stuff that you don't have any interest in. Uh, we try to keep it you know, just around ministry items, so we would love to have you on our prayer partner list. So that is available uh, after the service to you. So all that to say, let's get into the Word of God. This morning we're in the book of Acts, chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning, God, acknowledging our sin before you. God, we, we try to live a life that honors you, and still we fail. And God, still you love us. And still your, your blood covers those sins, God, that through your son's blood we can have a relationship with you. His sacrifice takes our place. And so, God, we bring those sins before you, and we acknowledge them. God, we own them, that we did them. God, we repent of them, and God, we beg your forgiveness of them. God, we ask that as we meet during this time that you would speak to us. God, we know that there is no thing that we can say. There is no thing that we can do. There is no magical formula that obligates you to meet with us this morning. And yet we come begging that you would speak into our hearts, you would speak into our minds, God, that we would leave changed, different, set on fire, thought, just thinking about you and how we can participate in your kingdom. God, may you be glorified, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You know, uh, a police station is never really a place that you want to go to. You know, it's not really a good place. When you think of places I want to go to, it's not usually the police station doesn't come up. But here I was in Africa in our little town of Lundazi. We live in a town of about ten to 12,000 people, and I needed to go to the police station. And so I go in, and I sit down, and there's a small wooden bench there, and I sit down. And there was two police officers in the room. And then as, we, as, as I entered in, there were about oh, 10 or so other police officers outside, and they kind of saw this Mzungu, this white man. 
and wanted to know why is this why is this Mzungu coming to the police station? Now in our town we are the only white people, and so we kind of attract attention no matter where we go. Most our children are the only white children. Ninety nine point nine percent of these people have ever seen, and so it, whether I'm with my children or if it's just me, we attract a crowd. And so I go in and I sit down on this bench, and the other police officers that were outside come walking in to see why this Mzungu was there. And so I start off by doing the greeting, which is Muliuli. And so I say Muliuli, and then he responds back, Makora, Kuala Namwe, which means I am well, and you, and I say Makora, which means I am well. But in this culture, you don't just greet the group, you have to greet everybody individually. And so I go into each of the 10 or 12 cops that have now come in. I'm muliuli, makola, kwa namwe, makola, muliuli, makola, kwa namwe, makola, muliuli, makola, kwa namwe, makola. So we go through this about 10 times, and then we start talking about everything else other than what we were there actually for, because that would be rude. We don't have a relationship yet. So I need to talk to them about everything but the police department. So I start talking to them about where do they live and what crops have they planted and has the rains come this year and how are the crops growing this year and what about their family? How are they doing? And do their children go to school? And how many children do they have? And how many wives do they have? And so we start just going through all these different things and talking about everything other than the reason I was there. And in the conversation, it's a a back and forth. And so one of the police officers that sat down beside me was what we say in Zambia. It's a British term. You probably have heard it before. This guy was being a little bit cheeky. Do you know that term? It means that he was just being a little, he was having a a good time, playful with me, but he was being a little bit um, mean in his comments here or there, just, but in a playful way. It was was all in, in good fun. And so he's being a bit cheeky throughout the conversation. And so we, he starts asking me questions as well. And so he says, so, you know, you're, what is your name? And, well, where do you stay? And I said, well, I stay just there by Stone's Hotel. And he says, oh, you are the one with the dogs. <laughs> and I said, yeah, 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 I've, I've, got, I've got two dogs. Yeah, you are the one with the dogs. And now our dogs are rather large dogs. They're, um, they're, they're pretty big. In fact, I think we got a picture of them for you. There's our... <laughs> There's, there's Cecil and his friend. No, um, there's, there's our dogs. No, we actually do have a picture of our dogs on the next slide. That's Raider and Ramses. Raider for the Texas Tech Red Raiders and Ramses for the Tar Heel mascot, Ramses. And so those are our dogs, the Rhodesian Ridgeback and Rottweiler mix. They weigh about 85 pounds apiece, and the nationals there in Zambia are petrified of them. And so they are our security dogs as well as our, our pets. And so we start talking about these dogs. And he wanted to know, you know, he says, well, tell me, are your dogs vicious? Yes, they're very vicious. You know, I, I want to propagate this idea that these dogs are really going to, like, take your leg off if you start climbing the fence. And so they, he starts talking. About, he says, so tell me, what do you feed your dogs? And I said, well, I, I feed them dog food. And he says, well, where do you buy your dog food? You know, if I find myself in Chapada, which is a town about two hours away, I, I buy the dog food there. Or maybe if I'm in Lusaka, the capital city, which is 11 hours, I, I'll buy the dog food there and I bring it back because you can't find dog food in our town. And he says, so you buy your dog food in Chapata? Yes. And you feed your dogs this dog food? Yes. And this dog food... It's what makes them vicious. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 no. And he's like, so what do you feed them that makes them so vicious? 
And now, if you've been around me years ago, you know I'm a little slow on the draw, but eventually I kind of catch up to things. And so I was like, oh, I see where he's going with this now. Okay, so and I said, oh, now, again, he's been a bit cheeky with me, right? And so I think, well, if you have remember from my past here as well, I, I take opportunities to be a little cheeky myself back when I have the opportunity. And so I said, well, here's a good opportunity. And so what do you feed your dogs? Oh, you are asking me, my friend, what do I feed my dogs to make them so vicious? Yes. I said, oh, children. <laughs> and I kept a straight face for about five seconds. And then I just smiled. And all the other police officers in that room just busted out laughing, except for the one that was beside me. And then I spent the next ten minutes explaining why I really shouldn't be put in jail. <laughs> and had to kind of talk my way out and you know, say I'm really not confessing to a crime. As we come to the text this morning, we see that the disciples asked Jesus a question. And much like the police officer's question to me was a bit flawed in his logic, also the disciples' question in this text is a little bit flawed. And Jesus gently kind of guides their question through this text and redirects it so it's more of a spiritually focused question. And so I want to talk about how God changes this question and kind of turns it a little bit so its focus is more on him and on becoming believers and what he would have for them in the future. And so this is the question. If you look back in your text in verse 6, he says, the the disciples ask this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the first thing that Jesus does, he turns a you question into a you command. A you question into a you command. You see, the disciples are asking this and going, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do next? Now, that's really a fair question for them because keep in mind, this is the book of Acts. And so in the first book of this is Luke. And they have seen, the disciples have walked with Jesus. They were called into discipleship. They walked with him. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. And then the ultimate miracle of all, they saw him be crucified buried, and then raised to life. And then for the last 40 days, they have been with him as he has been eating with them. He's been walking through closed doors. He's been teaching them in his resurrected body. And so the disciples are like, man, what are you going to do next? How are you going to top what you just did, Jesus? This is amazing. How are you going to, what's the next thing that you're going to do? And Jesus says, look, That's not your business. The Father has fixed all these things by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He turns a you question to you command, and he says, look, it's not just about continuing to look to Jesus. We know from this text he's about to ascend into heaven. I think if we're not careful in our spiritual lives, we can continue to look to Jesus when Jesus would have us take action. And we kind of relegate things like the lost to a prayer list item. Is it possible that God intends us to do more with the lost in our lives than just pray for them? Is it possible that God would have us take action so we actually get to introduce people to Christ? Heather's going to come this morning and share a story of her experience on the mission field being able to do that. I love it when God gives a hands-on lesson to me on something he's teaching me. And David was just speaking about how God gives us 
um, a command, and we have a real responsibility as followers of Christ to fulfill that. But the other side of that is it's a great privilege, and there's great joy in obedience. And so I want to share a story about a girl named Shupe. And we had been there not too long. I knew the greetings, and I knew how to say, my name is, and what is your name? That's about it. And where we live, we live in a town of about 10,000, but then we drive out to very remote villages on dirt roads, pretty rough and tumble, um, sometimes, sometimes really muddy and fun. But um, this one church we were going out to was about an hour away, and we hadn't been there yet. And the name of the church is Jerusalem Baptist. And it is really far out there. So far out there, it's probably what you imagine Africa to be because we're in very rural Africa. There are parts that are not this rural, but there's huts. There's the women carrying amazing loads on their heads and babies on their backs. There's men riding bicycles loaded down with charcoal or uh, who knows what. Sometimes they're families on the back of their bicycle. And so we're passing rolling green hills with people working in the field with their hose. As we're driving out, I'm just having this, we're in Africa moment. So we keep driving. It's so far out there that we learned from one of our friends in town that people don't like to go, the town people don't like to go out to this village because there's not medical care out there. There's not hardly any schools. The schools are really pitiful out there. And so the people are much more dependent on witchcraft, their traditional beliefs. So it's a very dark place, so dark that even other people that are really familiar with that kind of belief system are hesitant to go out there. But um, Zambians really um, value visitors. And so once we arrived, the people at this church, they don't have a full-time pastor. They are out there, and they've been um, really faithful to follow the Lord, even though it's a small congregation. And there's a picture of the church there, and I just love it. And it's um, earth wall, about halfway up. The pews are made out of earth, and they're pretty low to the ground. And the thatch roof. And the style of worship's a little different there. There's a lot more dancing and singing. And pretty much there is a start time, but when you get there, it's okay. Because life is hard in Zambia, and someone's ox really might have fallen in the ditch that morning. And so just whenever you can come, come. Be a part. Just come. And so we had sung. Oh, it's also really traditional over there. The women wear long skirts and things are separated. Like usually men sit on one side and women sit on the other side, but this is a very small group. So the women sit in the front and the men sit in the back. So um, we're up there at the front. This is actually the day, I think. That's little Carissa beside me. And I'm sure Mikhail's on the other side of me. And we're dancing and in walks a girl. And um, she sits right in front of me. She's about 12 years old, a young girl. She has her younger sister, I'm guessing, with her. They sit right in front of us. Um, and as we're singing, she keeps making kind of glances back at me because we are unusual over there. And I was struck by her as well, but I was struck by her scars because there the young girls often will have their hair really short. It's very regal looking. But... Her head and her face, the side of her face, her shoulder, her arm, were covered in scars, looked like from burns. So then we sat down for some announcements and stood back up to sing, and I wanted to see if the scars went all the way down to her feet. So as we got up and started dancing and singing, I looked at her feet, 
and I was heartbroken to discover that one of her foot, her feet were not burned, but one of her feet was turned up, and um, it was a birth defect. And my heart just broke for her because the Zambian women are amazing. They get up early, they go fetch the water, they chop wood, they carry big logs on their head, they start a fire, they cook their family meals, three meals a day over a fire, they wash their clothes in the river. I mean, they're amazing, and they do it often with a smile. And if I tell them, I don't know how you do it, they say, oh, we're used to it. I say, well, can you imagine me washing my clothes? (laughs) No. (laughs) They know. I'm not used to it. But they're amazing. And the other thing, so the women are valued for their work and what they can bring to the family with their work. The other thing, Zambian women, they are some of the most beautiful people, the Zambian people in general. They are so beautiful. And every 12-year-old girl, no matter where you are, wants to be beautiful. And here she sits in front of me, deformed and um, physically challenged and with burns on her face and her arms. And so I started praying for her. I just thought, what a hard life she has. But she was saved. She survived whatever, you know, with the open fires. A lot of times kids do fall in and get burned. But this was the worst I had seen. And so afterwards I greeted her in my limited Chitumbuka and um, I asked her her name, and she told me it was Shupe. Well, over the the following years, we would go back as we would rotate through the different churches to visit and encourage. She was never there. And I was praying for her while we weren't there and while we were continuing to work on language. But it always made me sad when I got there and she wasn't there. But I was a little nervous to ask because I wasn't sure I'd heard her name right because Shupe is such a different name to me. And so... I just waited and kept praying. Well, our last Sunday at this church, Jerusalem Baptist, it was halfway through the sermon, and and we were meeting in the school then because their other church had kind of fallen in, and we're sitting on a brick, and in walks Shupe and her sister. And I was so excited. It was hard to contain my joy and hard to listen to the sermon still. And I was really praying because I had learned a lot of Chitumbuka, and I felt like I needed to speak to her. I felt the Holy Spirit laying that on my heart. But I was nervous that I would mess it up with language. What if I didn't say it quite right? What if, what if she left before I got to speak to her? So I was praying that she would stay, and then I would get to share with her. And so as soon as that service was over, usually, and those that have come know, you go to the older people first and you greet them. And so since I'm a woman... I would go to the older women first and greet them because they really show the older generation respect, and I really like that. But this time, I broke tradition, and I went straight to the young girl, and I greeted her. And I said, Mululi, and um, she said, Mululi, back. And I, I said in the language, I said, I'm so happy to see you. We've been coming, and you've not been here. And I've been looking for you, and you've not been here. And I am so happy you're here this morning. And she said, do you remember my name? And I said, yes, it's Shupe. I was really hoping I had heard her right. And she just smiled. And I said, and Shupe, you are beautiful. You're beautiful in the eyes of God, and he loves you, and he has a purpose for you. And by that time, the older ladies, they're so sweet, and they're so small. They're such small people, and then here I am. But So the little ladies are coming over to greet me, and Shufei's looking uncomfortable, and our moment was gone. But it was a real um, encouragement to me to really step out in obedience when God stirs my heart through his Holy Spirit to maybe even 
step out of cultural tradition and to speak to whoever he might lay on my heart. And um, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, um, my prayer this morning is that you'll know that he does see you and he knows your secret scars and he loves you and he has a purpose for you. And those of you that are already following Jesus, I just want to encourage you as I remind myself that he is so faithful and we do have a responsibility to share but we also have a great privilege, and it's such a joy to get to share the love of Christ with someone. And who am I? I know this little girl named Shupe in a village. Who am I that I get to know her? Thank you. So Jesus in this text tells us that uh, it turns a you question into a you command. We have a personal responsibility and a privilege to be able to share our faith. The n- next thing that Jesus does is he turns a when question into a what command. A when question to a what command. They were looking at Jesus and they were saying, Jesus, is this now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What are you going to do next, Jesus? And we want to know the time so we can schedule you in. Jesus, when are you going to move next? When is it going to happen? And Jesus turns and he's like, no, 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 it's it's not about the time. You don't need to know the time that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. He turns a a when question into a what command. And there's really two words that you need to kind of key in on here. And the first one is this, is power. The word that he uses here for power is the same word that we get our word dynamite from. And so he says, you will receive dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's a quick little check for our spirits. When's the last time we would describe the Holy Spirit's power within us as dynamite type of power? When's the last time we've encountered the Holy Spirit in such a way that we would attribute it to dynamis type of power? He says the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to give you this power. And then he says, you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit is given to you, so you will be my witnesses. And the word he uses here for witnesses, we transliterate it as martyr. And we know that these disciples, they've walked with Jesus, they've been there through his teachings, through his healings, through his death, through his resurrection, now going to be his ascension. And tradition teaches us that most of these disciples would die a martyr's death. Because they had a testimony to share. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power to be my witnesses. Now, from the Bible, from the whole counsel of the Bible, we know that the Holy Spirit plays many different roles in the life of the believer. But in this text, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is given to you so that you will be my witnesses. Isn't it interesting? The very thing that Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit is given to us for is done by so few believers today. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? I'm not talking about taking a hot meal to somebody. I'm not talking about giving somebody a little money for gas for gas for their car. I'm not talking about paying for the person behind you in Chick-fil-A so they can have a free meal. I'm talking about when is the last time you shared your faith so somebody could turn from going to hell to having a relationship with Christ. 
Now, I'm all about good deeds. Y'all know when I was here, we did things called live the witness. We went out and engaged our community. We were very active in doing those things. Reed has carried that on beautifully, and y'all have done a great job of continuing it. But listen, good deeds are the road over which the good news travels. The problem is we often do good deeds. We pave that road, but we never drive the car down it. When is the last time we shared our faith with somebody who didn't know Christ. There's a picture on the screen, and it shows you, I believe, our area of ministry. This is Zambia on the top left, and then on the right is our little area, the eastern province where we, uh, where we serve at. The next picture will show you a map, and I know to you this means absolutely nothing. The little shaded in area is our area of ministry where Heather and I are personally responsible for taking the gospel out and sharing the, our faith with people and creating disciples. This is 5,000 square miles. To put that in context, you could take York County and put it into our area of ministry seven and a half times. And we are the only missionaries there to share the good news. The people group that we share among are considered an unreached people group. What that means is there are less than 2% believers in our people group. To put that another way, if you were to walk through our town and you were to ask a hundred people, can you tell me how to have a relationship with Christ, only two of them would be able to lead you to the Lord. Actually, our area, Lundazi District, they estimate us at one quarter of one percent. So it's actually, if you went to 400 people in Lundazi and asked them, can you tell me how to know Jesus, there would be one out of 400 that could actually lead you to Jesus. That is our context. That's why we encourage teams to come over and work with us. But listen, it's not just, you don't have to go overseas necessarily to proclaim the gospel. You guys will go this afternoon and you will put your feet under the table with people that you call family that don't know Christ. And you'll say a blessing and you'll get up after the meal's over and you'll leave and not see them for another couple of weeks all the time, just letting the opportunity to share your faith slip away. But in your county, there's also a great need to share the gospel. This isn't just about going over to Africa or going over to China or going over to India or going down to South America someplace to share the gospel. There are people in your lives that need to hear the gospel. And even as I say that to you, you picture them in your mind. You know exactly who I'm talking about. They may be your family members. They may be somebody you work with. It may be somebody that you go to school with that you know that they do not have a relationship with Christ, and they need that. And you may be the person that God intends to take that message to them. The next slide will give you some numbers. There are 7.2 billion people in the world. Three billion of them are unreached with the gospel or live in unreached people groups. What that means is three billion people live in people groups that have less than 2% evangelical Christians. They estimate America, the rough estimate for America is about 25% are evangelical believers. So three billion people live in the world where only 2% or less are evangelical believers. The next slide shows you some information on people groups. There are some 11,000 people groups in the world. There are 6,781 people groups that are considered unreached with the gospel. Again, that's that 2% figure. 
And then that bottom number is 3,092 that are unreached, unengaged. What that means is there are less than 2% evangelical believers in their people group, and there is currently no evangelical denomination, whether it be Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist, whatever evangelical denomination, there is no evangelical denomination trying to change that. So currently... Almost 100% of those people in those people groups are going to hell. And the church is doing nothing to change that. Is that reflective of what Jesus talks about in this text? When he says, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. The church, by and large, has failed to do what Jesus has commanded us in his last words. So Jesus turns a when question into a what command. And the final thing Jesus does is he turns an earthly kingdom question into a spiritual kingdom command. He says this, or they ask, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus turns their small focus into the whole world. He says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples are asking this question. Hey, Jesus, are you not going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because in the book of Joel in the Old Testament, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was going to signify the the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so they have a, a good basis to ask this question, this not kind of left field question. They're saying, hey, look, the prophet Joel told us that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on us, and then you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and that's when everything's going to be restored. And the disciples are thinking in their mind, hey, listen, I've been walking with Jesus for three years. I've heard his teaching. I've seen his miracles. I've been a part of it. I've participated in it. And so if there's something, a kingdom that's coming, I'm going to be put in leadership because I've been with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, listen, it's time to turn your focus from the kingdom of Israel to the whole world. He has bigger things in mind than their little spiritual kingdom or their little earthly kingdom that they were thinking about. He was turning their minds towards spiritual realities. And I think if we're not careful in our lives, we can be focused on our own little spiritual kingdom and not focused on a worldwide kingdom of God. Now, a picture that's coming up is that the three, or sorry, the five pastors that we participate with, we work with, and partner with, great guys. They've been to school and they've been educated, and typically in a family, there they pick the oldest one or two males to go to school, and then they will sacrifice for those children to go to school. They'll buy, they'll pay their fees to go into school. They'll pay for their uniforms in school, and the parents sacrifice to make sure those kids have an education. Moms and dads in here. Now, our hope, right, is, hey, can I use a stool? Is this okay? Um, is, is it, where's the pastor? Can I use a stool? Is that all right? All right. Am I going to get in trouble? All right. Um, in, in their culture, you go to school, and then you come home, and you take, to, take care of mama and daddy. After you, you go out and get a job, they've sacrificed for you. Now it's time for you to sacrifice for them. Now, in our culture, we're just like, hey, Go to school, get an education. When you get out from either high school or college, go get you a job and get off of mama and daddy's insurance. Get off of, out of mama and daddy's house. You buy your own food. You pay for your own clothes. Mama and daddy are taking a vacation to Hawaii, right? 
that's our goal as parents. We're just kind of like, I mean, obviously we want them to be good, rounded, well-rounded people and everything. But we are ready for our kids by the time they're 21, 22 years old to say bye-bye to our pocketbook, right? There, that's not the case. What they say is, okay, we've sacrificed for you. Now it's time for you to sacrifice for us. And so because we've done that, now you take care of us. You build us a house made of bricks rather than of mud. You give us a tin sheeting on our roof instead of having thatch roof. We want you to take care of us now. And that's what is expected and done in their culture. But these guys, not only do, when they answer the call to ministry, they call, answer a call to poverty. They're not paid a penny by their churches. They get up and they do their sermons. They get up, they do their Bible studies. They go and visit people. They go to the hospitals and visit people. And they work during the week, whatever they can do, whether it's hauling charcoal on their bicycles to the town to sell it or if it's just raising crops to be able to sell them. They do whatever they can do to support their family in a life of poverty so then they can do the ministry. And so when they answer the call to ministry, they answer a call to poverty, but not just for themselves, but also for their parents. Their parents are waiting for them to give the money back to them. They've sacrificed for them. Now it's time for you to sacrifice for them. So when they go to their parents and say, hey, look, mom and dad, I feel like God is calling me into ministry. He wants me to be a pastor. Mom and dad are not happy because that means that they're going to die in poverty. That they're going to continue to live in their mud hut. And so a lot of times what happens is because of that, their parents are going to disown them. And the parents say, listen, if, you, if that's your choice, if you want to follow Christ and you want to be a pastor, you're no longer part of us. Go find another plot of land. We don't want you. Because they've brought shame on their family by choosing that. These guys, even though they have their, their downfalls and their difficulties... They are focused on the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. And as we come into this room together and we start thinking, you know, am I focused on the kingdom of God or am I focused on my own kingdom? Can I just give us three? There's three easy ways that we can think about how are we interested in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. Here's number one. Let's talk about our finances because that's the easiest one to just go ahead and take care of and get off our table. What do your finances say you're more interested in, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? I mean, that's easy. We go through our checkbook, if you still keep a checkbook. If you go online and you can do all the different tools to see where your money is going, you can look at it. How much money are you investing in the kingdom of God? And I'm not, uh, hey, listen, tithing to the church is expected. I mean, that is just a given in my book. As believers, we participate in church life, and part of that participation is giving our 10% to the church. But I'm talking about even beyond that, as you support missionaries like Heather and I that are serving around the world, or you're giving money to different organizations within this community to preach the gospel to these lost people, what do our finances say we are more interested in, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? How about how we're spending our time? What does our time say we are more interested in, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? How do we invest in our children? Listen, one of the exciting things about us coming back to America, we've been gone for four years overseas and we came back. One of the things we really looked forward to was getting to go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore and sit down and start looking through devotionals for our children. 
I got to baptize my two eldest children this morning. But look, guys, if all I do is lead my children to Christ, all I'm doing is creating spiritual orphans. Are we willing to invest our time to lead our families and our children to maturity in Christ? Or are we okay with just bringing them to church one day a week, sending them up to the youth room or over to the children's department, maybe even on Wednesday nights, and think that's okay with their spiritual life? They're going to turn out great. Mama and Daddy are just going to send that out to the pastor and the youth pastor. Or are we willing to invest our time and disciple our children so they grow up in their faith in Christ? What about our prayer life? What does our prayer life say? Are we more interested in my grandmother's hip than we are a lost people group around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus? What does our prayer list say about us and our priorities? Do we even really spend time in prayer? When is the last time you looked up a people group and you said, you know, God, I want you to burden my heart for this people group, and I'm going to adopt them, I'm going to think about them, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to find a way that I can either get there or give to somebody that is there so those people can be reached with the message of Christ. How long do we spend in our time and prayers based on earthly things? I'm talking about medical things, job things, family things, or are we more interested in the kingdom of God? Sometimes those things will cross over a little bit, but most of the time we spend just on our earthly kingdom in our prayer. I'm going to offer you this challenge is when the youth go on the ski retreat, I'm so thankful Reed has invited me to speak this weekend at their, this coming weekend at their ski retreat, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's something that I got to do when I was here as the youth pastor. And so I'm going to go and speak. And what we're going to be talking about, one of the things we're going to be talking about is discipleship. And I'm going to challenge the students to come back to while they're there to write down a name of somebody that they think can disciple them in their faith. And I'm going to challenge them to come back and ask that person to disciple them. Which means that the people in the first service and the people in this service, some of you, some youth is going to come back to you next week or the following week and say, I want to learn to follow Jesus better. Will you disciple me? Are you going to be prepared for that? Are we really ready to disciple people to maturity in faith? Or are we okay with just coming to church one day a week in an hour of worship? Are we focused on the kingdom of God or are we focused on our own kingdom? I love the way this text ends. If, if, you, don't, if, if you read the Bible and you don't see humor in the Bible, you miss it because it's all over in the Bible. But this is one of those humorous passages because here's the disciples. Jesus just says, look, go out into the world and share the gospel with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus is taken up into heaven, and the disciples are standing there like, what? And the Bible doesn't say, it just says they they were gazing, which means they had their eyes 
fixed. They were just gazing into heavens. And it doesn't say if they were just standing there in worship, if they were standing there because they were just awestruck, if they were standing there because they were dumbstruck, if they were standing there just waiting, okay, he went up, is he coming right back down? What's getting ready to happen? It just says that they had their eyes gazing into heaven, and then these two angels appeared before them, and they said, why are you still standing here? As if to say, okay, move along. You just heard what Jesus said to you, right? You didn't miss it. You heard what he said to you. You've got a job to do. You have a mission now placed in front of you. Go about your business. Now, we know from this text that the disciples had to go back and they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. So their job, their next job was to go and to wait for the Holy Spirit. But here's the cool thing. If you are in this room and you've accepted Christ into your heart and life, there is not a waiting period for you. You don't have to wait to share your faith because the Holy Spirit is already in you and empowering you to share your faith. But practically, it may mean that you have to wait to share your faith. And let me give you three quick challenges and as we close this morning. Here's number one. You may be here this morning in this room, and you would say, you know, I've got lost people in my life. I am a believer. But, David, if I'm honest with you, I really do not know how to share my faith with somebody. If somebody came to me, I'm a Christian. I just don't know how to, how to put it all together. I don't know how to lead somebody through that so they could actually say, now I'm a Christian. I want to give you this challenge. Would you go home today? And send a email to Pastor Scott or to Pastor Reed and say, hey, I really just don't know how to share my faith. Would you help me with that? Would you teach me how to do that? I feel sure that Scott and Reed both would work out something, whether it's one-on-one or a class or something, so you guys can learn how to share your faith, so you can lead your friends and your family, your, your co-workers and the people you go to school with, so you can lead them to faith in Christ. But maybe you're here this morning, and that's not you. You're like, you know, I actually have done the Romans road, and I've done you know, following or sharing Jesus without, without fear, and I've done this other thing, and so I actually know how to share my faith. The, the problem is that I really just don't have the money to go on a mission trip, and I'm not talking about, it, it could be international mission trip. If you come to see us and work with us, it's going to cost you about $3,000. But even in America, are you, do you have the finances to go? And you would say, you know, I just, I don't. I don't have the money. I don't have it budgeted for I, where I could go, actually go. So if God called you today and said, go and share your faith in Utah, you would go, I, I can't do it. I don't have the money. Would you do this? Would you go home today? Would you open up your bank account on your computer? Would you uh, start a savings account? And every time you get paid, would you start pulling off $10 or $20 or $50 and put that into a savings account called mission? So whenever God calls you to do mission work, that finances are not going to stand in your way. That's going to be the last thing that you're worried about because you've been saving intentionally all this time. So when God calls you to do that, you're ready to go. Now here's the last thing. And I'm going to make a clarification before I say that, which is really a, a fun thing, because that, what that means is I'm about to be very provocative with what I say, okay? If you have a health issue that would prohibit you from going overseas and serving in that capacity, that's okay. 
I really don't think God expects you, if you've got something going on medically where you can't go overseas, I don't think God is calling you to go overseas. We have in our volunteer handbook, if you have issues medically, please don't come and work with us. We are so far out into the bush. If you have a heart attack in Lundazi, you are going to die in Lundazi. There's no way about it. If you have something that happens after 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we can medevac you out of Lundazi, but the plane will not come till 9 o'clock the next morning. So if you have a health concern, there are things that you are not able to do, and I don't expect, or I don't believe that God expects you to do those things. But apart from that, maybe you say, I can, I, I, I know how to share my faith, and I actually could come up with the money, not saying that I, I'm wealthy or anything, but I could save enough and I could come up with the money. But some of you in this room, you don't even have a passport. So here's the deal. We stand in church and we sing, wherever he leads, I'll go. How can we sing that with any level of conviction if we don't have a passport? God could call you today to come and partner with us in Zambia. He could be calling you in your heart today to go to India and serve or to China and serve. But the truth of the matter is that if God called you today, you could not get on the outside of the borders of America because you don't have a passport. Would you go home today and start the paperwork to apply for a passport? Not saying God's calling you at this point to go anywhere in particular. But so whenever God does call you, you are ready to step out and to go and participate with him in reconciling the world to a loving Savior. You know, the disciples at the beginning of this text, they ask the question, and we know it's a little bit off base. I think sometimes we also have a little off base questions in regards to our faith. God, do you, do you want me to go and, and do mission work? Yes. That is the answer, clear from the Bible. God wants us to participate in missions. I'm not saying where God wants you to participate, but the question is very clear in this text. God wants his believers active in the world, reconciling them to himself across the globe. William Carey says, to know the will of God, you need an open Bible and an open map. One of my favorite missionaries of all time, a guy named C.T. Studd, says this, The light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. It's, it's great to think about Africa and doing mission work there. But honestly, I think a lot of times it's more difficult to share with those people that are right around us all day long, every day involved in our lives. The truth is, that as Christian believers, we are called to continuously share our faith no matter where we find ourselves geographically. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and speak this morning. God, I, man, what, a, what an amazing thing that you would use us to introduce people to you. God, what an opportunity we have to, to share our faith. And God, I just pray that you would put that person on the mind, on the heart of the people in this room that you would have them share their faith with. God, if you're calling somebody to go and do mission work, God, that they would surrender that to you today, God. God, there is a very real possibility that there's somebody in this room that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. 
God, what an opportunity it is for them today to come talk to Pastor Scott or Pastor Reed and be able to find out about what that looks like to come into relationship with you. God, we give this to you at, at this time. Do with our hearts what you desire. Let us be open and sensitive to you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.